As they are being dismissed, I want to uh, challenge you guys. This is uh, the first Sunday of the Lenten season. Uh, for those of you who grew up Catholic, you understand exactly what I mean. By those of you who uh, did not grow up Catholic, you're looking around thinking, am I in the right place? Uh, the Lenten season is uh, part of the church calendar, whether you are Protestant or whether you are uh, Catholic. Uh, and it commemorates a time of year where we reflect on the, the time of fasting leading up to the time of feasting and celebration that is commemorated and that is uh, uh, commensurated with the resurrection of Easter. Uh, and so it is, it is appropriate for us as Christians uh, to, to reflect on the sacrifice that our Lord endured during his 40 days in the wilderness leading up to his earthly ministry. It is, uh, it is a good practice, the scripture tells us, that when you fast, do it like this. And so the idea of fasting and praying uh, should be a part of our discipline as believers. And so I just want to encourage you during this Lenten season, whether you fast uh, from food, whether you have chosen uh, to, to give up something, uh, whether you've chosen to add something to your life, this use this Lenten season, use this time in the church calendar to reflect upon what Christ has done as He endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the Father. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to the book of Philippians chapter 2 as we continue to walk through Paul's prison epistle, his epistle, his letter to the church at Philippi, We're going to read verses 12 through 18 this morning. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Paul writes, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, that you might have so that in the day of Christ Jesus I may have cause to glory because I did not run, I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And you too. I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Let's pray. God, as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. May we find the joy that is in Christ. May we be encouraged by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. May we be challenged to live as a light in a dark place. May your Holy Spirit encourage us, challenge us, convict us. May you bring us into obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to bring us back to the context of this text. If we remember the beginning of chapter 2, Paul starts out, 
Make my joy complete. Do this. What was this? Think of others before you think of yourself. And then he gives us this this practical application. How do we do that? We have the mind of Christ. Oh, that's easy, right? That we consider Christ. He said, have this mind in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, thought uh, thought it robbery to be considered equal with God. And so he emptied himself, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death upon a cross. And therefore God highly exalted him and has given him the name that is above every name. So have this mind in you. Look to the, look to the humility of Christ as we consider others more important than ourselves. Most scholars believe that verses 8 through 11 is a excerpt from a hymn, an ancient hymn that, that Paul pulled the, the chorus or pulled the verse and stuck it in this epistle to, to give them the, the poetic nature of that language. He says, he says, just, it, it would be as if, it would be as if I'm writing you a song or I'm writing you a letter and in the middle of that letter, I, I put a, the lyrics to a very popular, very famous song, you would, you would get the sense of what I'm saying because you know the whole hymn, you know the whole song. And so that's what Paul was probably doing here. He was, as he was writing this letter, he pulls this excerpt out of this hymn. And he says, have this mind in you, which is also in Christ. And then we get this excerpt from this, this, this poetry, this hymn, and it reminds the reader of all that that entails. Not that there is not theological and biblical truth there, because there absolutely is, but the context is very much within chapter 2, that we should consider others more important than ourselves. And if we look at the beginning here in verse 12, he says, so then. That's just a fancy way of saying therefore. It is the same Greek, the same Greek word to look at Look at what have I just said, because Christ has humbled himself, because Christ has emptied himself, become obedient to the point of death, and God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. Therefore, so then, what is he saying? He says, so then, beloved, hear what he says. So then, beloved, my fellow brethren, those whom I love, the church that I have poured out my life for, beloved, Just as you've always obeyed, continue to obey. And this is what he says at the end of this verse. And I've labeled this, I've titled this sermon, Work Out Your Salvation, because he challenges the church. Now keep in mind, this is not a group of of misfits. This is not a group of... uh, let me, bat, let me rephrase. It is a group of misfits, but it is a group of redeemed misfits. This is a group of people who have claimed and called themselves believers. They have gathered together at the church. They have been baptized. They have begun this, this work of, of reconciliation and seeking and sharing the gospel with those, world, those in the world around them. This is the church that he's talking to. And so he is not going to the bar room. He is not going to, to the, the streets and telling them, work out your salvation. He is telling the church, those who call themselves believers, those who claim to be justified by the, the saving work of Christ, those who claim to be in Christ, he is encouraging them to work out their salvation. So what should that tell us? That it is incumbent upon us as believers, to constantly work out our salvation. 
There is a doctrine that Baptists have held to for years and years and years, and it is it is very much a, a sacred cow amongst Baptists, especially Southern Baptists, and the doctrine that, that it is affectionately referred to as once saved, always saved, that's a horrible explanation of that doctrine. The doctrine is not once saved, always saved. That simply in, in implies that once we get our justification, we can sit on our blessed assurance. And that is not what the doctrine of God's eternal salvation indicates and implies. A, a more clearer implication or a more clearer description is referred to as the perseverance of the saints. That those who are believers, those who are justified in Christ, those who have come to saving faith in Christ, will persevere to the end. That's what Jesus is referencing if we look at if we look at the book of Matthew chapter 24 verse 13, Jesus makes this statement. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said all of those who endure to the end they will be saved. Jesus didn't say if you said a prayer whenever you were 7 and you walked down an aisle and got wet in a baptistry, you will be saved. Jesus said he who endures to the end he will be saved. And so for us, for us as, as believers, what does that mean? That's why I believe Paul makes this statement that we are called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Salvation is not something that you go get at a grocery store and you put it in your, you put it in your cupboard and you have it for whenever bad times comes. You can pull out your salvation and you can use it as a coupon, as a get out of jail free card. Salvation is not that. Salvation, the scripture teaches us, salvation is a process that begins long before you were even aware that God was working in your lives. Salvation is a process where God begins to reveal His Holy Spirit in you and God begins to quicken you and He wait and awaken you to the things of the Holy Spirit. And then by God's grace, He brings you into a place where you have a collision course with the gospel. And there is absolutely a moment of conversion where we go from death into life. And so don't misunderstand me. There is absolutely a moment whenever we are justified, whenever we are, are the sin of, of that, that we deserve to die for, that that sin is paid for, and that, that Christ says, you are mine, and I am now in you, and, and I have adopted you as sons, and you are mine. There is that moment of conversion, but that is not where salvation ends. Many will argue that that's very the beginning of salvation. So as the Holy Spirit quickens us, as the Holy Spirit makes us aware of spiritual things, and then we, we see ourselves as a sinner and we cry out to Jesus for salvation, and we are converted, we are then adopted as sons. We are then His. And then the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us, and then there is this long process of sanctification where the Holy Spirit works in us, works through us, where God brings believers into our lives to encourage us. He brings believers into our lives to chasten us and to, to admonish us of sinful behavior. And He begins to, to carve away that which doesn't look like Christ. And through that process of sanctification, by the grace of God, hopefully we look more like Jesus at the end of that process than we did at the beginning of that process. But that is not the end of salvation. 
And then by the grace of God, when we die, we stand before Him, clothed not in our righteousness, not in what we have done, but in His righteousness and His righteousness alone. And He says, well done, thy good and faithful servant. And we are glorified with Christ. And we are given a new body, a glorified body. And we will rise again with Him in that day. And there is that that process and that moment of glorification that begins long, long ago. When God began working even before we were aware that God was working. And then there's a, the, the moment of, of regeneration and the moment of, of justification and adoption and, and sanctification that culminates in glorification. And so when Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he's not asking, did you ever pray and ask Jesus to come into your heart? He's not saying, do you want to go to heaven or do you want to go to hell? Because any seven-year-old that's in kids' church, if you give them the option, hey, do you want to go to heaven or do you want to go to hell? Uh, I'm going to choose heaven. Well, then repeat this prayer after me. Oh, well, then you're saved. All you have to do is, is, is say this prayer. Newsflash, church, that's not in this. There is no sinner's prayer anywhere in the scripture. It's not there. There... The idea of asking Jesus to come into your heart is not in the Gospels. What is in the Gospels is that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What is in the Gospels is that we are born sinners and that we're in desperate need of someone to take our place. We are in need of righteousness because God's holy righteous requirement has not changed. God is immutable. That means he does not change from eternity past to eternity future. God is the same and his requirement for holiness is the same. But the problem is, is that you and I are sinners. We're liars, thieves, adulterers, murderers. The good news of the gospel is Jesus said, you don't have to be good enough. I'll be good enough for you. I'll take your place. I'll give you my righteousness and I'll take upon myself your sin. John tells us that Jesus became both just and justifier. That he fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law and that he justified us. He made it, it's a big fancy theological word. I'm going to give you a very easy way to remember it. Justified means just as if I'd never sinned. God justified us. He made it just as if we had never sinned. He took the penalty of sin on us, the penalty of sin that we deserve, He took it upon Himself. And as He died on the cross, the wrath of God that was due you and I was poured out upon Christ. And the righteousness of Christ was imputed unto us, was given to us. So when He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, He's asking you. He's saying, okay, church, You claim to be in Christ. Are you? Do you look more like Jesus now than you did yesterday? Than you did six months ago? Than you did six years ago? Is the process of sanctification evident in your life? Work out your salvation. It's a difficult question to ask. You've heard me say before, if you can't say amen, sometimes you've got to say ouch. When we work, when, when, when Paul, and I want to remind you who Paul is talking to. Paul is talking to Lydia. 
Paul is talking to the woman who started the church and who said, y'all come into my house. You can, I will, I will pay for this. I'll support this. He's talking to the Philippian jailer who tried to kill himself. And Paul says, no, 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 don't kill yourself. Nobody's left. And then he receives the, the gift of salvation and God, God transforms him. And the scripture tells us in the book of Acts that both the Philippian jailer and all of his household came to faith in Christ. That's who Paul's talking to. He's talking to the slave woman who was miraculously delivered from a demon of oppression and she was transformed immediately and miraculously. Paul is talking to her. This isn't the preacher standing up saying, you've done this and you've done this. This is the Apostle Paul writing to those who've been radically transformed by the gospel. And he says, work out your salvation. Something grand and miraculous may have happened in your life, but if you are not continuing to along this path of sanctification, then we need to reevaluate. Did you have an emotional experience with Jesus? Or were you radically transformed and are continuing to walk? in a manner worthy of Christ. Now, I want us to look at how Paul admonishes the church because he does so in a very methodical way. The first thing he does was he commends the church. As a dad, this is hard for me because when I see my children doing things that they should not do, What I want to do is knock them upside their head and say, don't do that. Don't be dumb. Don't do stupid things. Don't act like your dad. Don't do things that I did when I was growing up. Because because when I was growing up, that's how my dad treated me. When I would step out of line, he'd, he'd knock a, you know, knock a knot on my head and he'd say, boy, straighten up. Do this. Don't do that. You know, it was very, very rigid, very disciplinarian. And so as a dad, and I see my kids doing things that they shouldn't do, my initial reaction is, don't do that. And I want to fuss, and I want to, I want to yell, and I want to spank, and I want to discipline. But Paul gives us the exhortation here as he begins to admonish the church. Notice what he does in verse 13. I'm sorry, verse 12. So then, my beloved, he calls them those whom he loves, those whom he cherishes. And then he says this, just as you've always obeyed. Continue to do so. He commends them. He encourages them for what they have done. How many times in our lives, as a parent, when we're correcting our children, do we ignore the good things that they do and, and, and emphasize the wrong things that they do? How many times as a spouse, do we ignore the good, positive things that our spouses, our husband, or our wives do, and we focus on those things that drive us up a wall. Notice what Paul does. As he exhorts the church, as he encourages the church, as he calls them, and he's calling them to do a very difficult thing, to test themselves, to work out their salvation. He's saying, are you really saved? Are you really transformed? Are you really redeemed? But he begins... By commending them. By encouraging them. I want to challenge you. And this is a challenge for me too. See evidences of grace in others. It's easy to point out the flaws and the faults in others. But before you point out a flaw, look for the evidence of grace. Maybe the evidence of grace is as simple 
as that God has called them his own, that God has, has saw fit to redeem you. And maybe that's it. But hey, that's an evidence of grace. Think about positive things that we can say, because that's what, that's how Paul does. He begins by commending the church. And then he calls them to work out their salvation. And I want us to understand that Paul does not say, work for your salvation. I want us to understand that this is a very distinct difference. Salvation is 100% by the grace of God. We have in no way earned or deserved our salvation. Paul does not say, work for your salvation. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Understanding that salvation is a gift of God. It is the evidence of grace. Ephesians chapter 2, that we are saved by grace, through faith. It is a gift of God, not of ourselves, not a result of works, lest any man should boast. Salvation is not of ourselves, but we are called to work out our salvation, to test ourselves, to see that we be in the faith. James says it like this. In James chapter 2, beginning in verse 15, James writes, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, One of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, be filled. Yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? See, this is what what we in the church do often. Somebody has a need, somebody's hurting, somebody's broken. We say, I'll pray for you. May God bless you. And then we leave. Verse 17, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead by itself. Faith is not, I'm sorry, works is not the means to salvation, it is the evidence of salvation. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul is saying to the church, does your life mimic does your life resemble that of christ i've just told you have the mind of christ now work out your salvation do you have the mind of christ are you humble are you selfless do you consider others more important than yourself work out your salvation that is an evidence of the work of the holy spirit in your life that is an evidence of sanctification in your life work out your salvation he begins by commending them but then he commands them To live differently. The litmus of true justification is a life of sanctification. I'm going to say that again because that's important. The litmus, the test of true justification is a life of sanctification. You will look differently at the end of your life than you did at the beginning of your life. Paul makes a statement, makes three statements in the life of his ministry. He makes a lot of statements in the life of his ministry. He makes three very distinct statements. One of his earlier epistles, he writes to the church and he calls himself, he makes this statement reflecting upon his life. He said, I'm the least of all the apostles. Very humble statement that Paul makes. Later on in his life, later on in his ministry, he writes to Titus and he said, I'm the least of all of the disciples. I'm the least of all of the saints. 
Not just the apostles, but of all the saints of God, I am the least. And at the end of his life, in his farewell address to Timothy, he writes this, I'm the chiefest of sinners. Now let me ask you, do you think over Paul's life, do you think he became more sinful or less sinful? Probably less. But as he had a realistic understanding of his life, he got closer and closer to Christ. And the glory of Christ shone in his life. And as the glory of Christ shone in his life, as the light of Christ shined in his life, he was able to see each and every imperfection, each and every sin that much more clearly. It's not that Paul became more sinful. So he became more aware of his sin. In that process of sanctification, Paul became increasingly more like Jesus, yet became increasingly aware of his sin. The process of sanctification is evidence of our justification. We cannot, church, sit on our blessed assurance. We must work. We must do what God has called us to do. We must use our salvation. We must use the gifts and the abilities that God has given us to impact the world that He has placed us in. And now I want us to notice where Paul goes. Because Paul really steps on my toes right here. In Philippians chapter 2, he says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he says this, in verse 14. He says, Do all things... Without grumbling or disputing. Some of your versions versions may say, do all things without arguing or complaining. Remember, salvation is a process that begins in us and is worked in us and through us by the Holy Spirit. And then Paul says, you want to know how the evidence of God is working in your life? Do all things without arguing or complaining. How many of us can say we do all things without arguing or complaining? I've talked to just a few of you this morning, and the, the topic of traffic has come up in just the few conversations I've had this morning. How many of you have sat in traffic on the Mississippi River Bridge and not complained? How many of you have sat in traffic and think, how long do we have to sit in traffic on this bridge before the engineers will decide, you know what, we may need more than one lane going from I-10, the, the, the major artery going from east and west across the United States, there's only one place in the entire world that it goes down to one lane. Guess where that is? Baton Rouge. <laughs> nope. It's 11 o'clock at night. Hey, let's shut down the interstate. What moron says let's shut down the interstate, right? We, th- this, is, this is how we think. This is how we react. This is how we respond because we're human. Do all things without arguing or complaining. That's hard. That is hard. It is hard to live in a broken, sinful world and not argue, not complain. But Paul says the evidence of sanctification in our lives is that we understand that God is at work in, in, in all things and God is using all things to bring about His sanctification in my life. And the difficulty, the hardships, the trials, the, the, the things, the circumstances that God has placed me in is by His grace and by His sovereignty 
for my betterment and whether I can see how it's beneficial to me or not, I must praise God in that. John Piper likened it unto this. He said, suppose that there was a man who was traveling to New York City to receive an exorbitant inheritance. He was destined, he was, he was uh, destined to inherit a tremendous estate, millions upon millions upon millions of dollars. And on his way to inherit this grand estate, his car breaks down. And he has to walk the last mile of the journey. And the whole time he's walking, he's cursing his car and saying, my, I can't believe my car. The, the dumb luck that on my trip to, to New York that my car breaks down and I've got to walk a mile. And he spends that last mile complaining and griping and grumbling because he had to walk the last mile to gain the estate that he was about to gain. Are we not in the same circumstances? Are we not destined to inherit far more than an estate? Galatians tells us, chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. Paul says, because you are sons, because we are His God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into us, into our hearts, that we can cry out, Abba, Father. Therefore, we are no longer a slave, but we are a son. And if we are a son, we are an heir to all that is His. God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He has a cattle on a thousand hills. And all that He has is destined to be ours. And we are we are called as saints, as children of God, to walk for this period of time in this broken, perverse world to be a light and a dark place, to be salt in a world that is flavorless. We are called to emulate Christ and we do nothing but gripe and complain because our car broke down. And it started raining. And my socks are wet. We're about to inherit all that the Father has to give us. And we have the nerve to complain about wet feet. Do all things without arguing and complaining. The only way that we can live this out is by constantly reminding ourselves of the gospel. Remember how Paul began this passage. So then. Therefore. Therefore what? Because, have this mind in you, which also in Christ Jesus, who emptied himself, humbled himself, took on flesh, died the death you were supposed to die, was buried in a borrowed tomb, rose victorious over sin, death, and the grave. God has highly exalted him. Consider him. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Hebrews, flip over to Hebrews chapter 12. 
Paul gives in Hebrews chapter 11, we have this, this, this hall of fame of faith. He says, consider Sarah, consider Abraham, consider Moses, consider Enoch, consider all of these, these great men and great women of the faith, consider Rahab. And he says, therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, since we have this hall of fame of faith, since we have these men and women who have faithfully served God, consider, since we have this Great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance. Do you see the, the common theme here? Run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do that? Verse 2, fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has set down to the right hand of the Father. Consider him. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. And then verse 4 says, you've not yet shed blood in your striving against sin. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that Paul calls the church to endure as an evidence of their faith? Do all things without arguing and complaining. Why? Because we are, go back to Philippians chapter 2, because we are the called out. We are the peculiar ones. We are the ones who have been called to live differently. Look at what he says. Philippians chapter 2. Verse 14 and 15, do all things without arguing and complaining that you may, don't complain, don't argue, live differently, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God. God in His great grace, after He has demonstrated salvation in us, chose to leave us in this crooked and perverse world. Wouldn't it have been easier? Wouldn't it have been more enjoyable that at the moment of our salvation we're called up to be with God? But that's not the way God intends to impact the world. In fact, in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, the scripture tells us that Jesus said, I do not pray that you would remove them from this world, but that you would keep them while in this world. What the world needs to see, they need to see Jesus in the midst of difficulty. Those of us, as I look across this room, there is a tremendous amount of hurt, pain, hardship, difficulty. There's those who've lost loved ones, those who've buried children, those who've endured disease, illness, God desires to work in us and through us that we may be light in a dark place. I'm going to close Matthew chapter 5. As Jesus encourages in the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this in verses 14 through 16. He tells His disciples, He says, You are the light of the world. A city set upon a hill cannot be hidden, nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure. But they put it on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So let your light shine before men, 
in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Do all things without arguing or complaining. Allow the Spirit of God to shine through us. It's easier said than done. I'm sitting up here on the pulpit telling you what to do. Telling you don't complain, telling you don't argue, telling you be happy with the circumstances God has, 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 has given you. And you're sitting out there, you're saying, preacher, it's easier said than done. I will acknowledge that. Absolutely. But the good news, the good news is found in Philippians. That Paul said, the way that we're able to do this is because God is doing it through you. We're not called to do it on our own. The sanctification process, the process of being more like, made more like Jesus, the process of glorifying God in our hardships, in our difficulty, in our circumstances, is made possible because the Spirit of God is living within us. Sanctification is the process where we work with the Holy Spirit to become more like Jesus. And so you say, preacher, how in the world do I praise God through the death of my loved one, through the death of my child or my spouse? How in the world do I praise God through the loss of a job? How in the world do I praise God through this circumstance or that circumstance? And the answer is, I don't know. But I know that the same Jesus, the same Spirit of God that was with Christ on the cross is within us. And that empowering work, that redeeming work, that sanctifying work is made possible through the Spirit of God. God is at work in us and through us. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Is the Spirit of God at work in you? Are you convicted of sin? Does the Spirit of God remind you of the things you ought to do and remind you of the things you ought not to do? Whether we're obedient or not, is God working in you? If He's not, then may today be the day of salvation. You say, preacher, I've already joined the church. I've already gotten wet in the baptistry. You can go down a dry center and come up a wet center. And all you've done is taken a bath. Baptisms don't save you. Church membership doesn't save you. Denominations don't save you. Jesus saves. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Maybe you are redeemed. And you needed to be reminded that God has called you to live differently. God has called you to be a light in a dark place. That He has placed you in the the work environment. He's placed you in the family environment for a specific purpose so that you can be a light in a dark place. He's given you the circumstances, the hardships, the difficulty in your life so that you can shine in the midst of a dark place. Let's go to the Lord with a word of prayer. God, this morning I believe that there are those who know that they need to trust Jesus. That if they were honest with themselves as they work out their salvation, if they're honest with themselves, they say, I may be a church member, but if I die today, I don't know that I would be in glory with heaven, with, with Christ.
If that's you this morning, I want to invite you to come. Settle that this morning. Begin this process of sanctification that begins with your conversion. Maybe this morning you know that you know that you know that you are redeemed, that you are His. But as you look back over your life, it's been marked more with failure than it has with obedience. God wants to encourage you this morning. He wants to call you to rely upon His grace and His mercy to conform you to the image of Christ. Maybe this morning God has called you to a deeper walk with Him to shine in the midst of your hardships and your difficulty, your circumstances. Whatever it is that God is speaking to your heart this morning, may you find yourself obedient. Maybe you need to come to this altar, pray. Maybe you need to grab someone and come with you. Maybe you need to thank God for the opportunities that He's given you to shine in a dark world. God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would have its way in this place this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand with us?